0: We will focus on all aspects of the perinatal period with special attention to reducing our maternal mortality rate. This podcast is brought to you through a cooperative agreement with the Alliance for Innovation on Maternal Health. Welcome back to another episode of Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee. I'm your host, Amanda Nally. We're excited to share this conversation between Dr. Anna Murad, the TIPQC Infant Medical Director, and Dr. Morgan McDonald, the Deputy Commissioner for Population Health at the Tennessee Department of Health. They discuss adverse childhood experiences, or ACEs, and how those experiences can affect the long-term health of children across our state. Let's jump right in. Welcome, everybody. This is Anna Murad, the Infant Medical Director
1: for TIPKC, and we are very happy to be talking to Dr. Morgan McDonald today. Morgan is our Deputy Commissioner for Population Health for the state of Tennessee. Welcome, Morgan. Thank you. So tell us a little bit about yourself and how you found your way to public health.
2: Sure. First of all, thanks so much for having me on the podcast. And it's really a pleasure always to work with Tip QC. The work that you guys do is such high impact. And we as a state are really privileged to work with such a talented group of folks across the state coming from multiple different perspectives. So a little bit about me. As you mentioned, I'm currently serving as the Deputy Commissioner for Population Health at the Tennessee Department of Health. And I found my way into that role, I think, really mostly because of a passion to think about health and health care comprehensively and particularly from the perspective of some of our most vulnerable patient populations. I'm trained in internal medicine and pediatrics and went to med school at Vanderbilt and then residency at University of North Carolina and was on faculty there for a little bit before coming back to Vanderbilt as MedPeds faculty and um, working closely with the residency program there. And what really drew me back to Nashville was that opportunity to work with vulnerable patient populations. And at the time, the uh, student-run health clinic, Shade Tree was um, really looking for experience in local FQHCs and in the day-to-day operations of the safety net in Nashville. And so I was very privileged to be able to set up a clinical practice with our safety net clinics uh, here in Nashville, and particularly with the homeless population for a number of years, and then really to work on curriculum development around social determinants of health, in particular for both internal medicine and pediatric residents and uh, medical students. And then I joined the department in 2015, really working mostly on chronic disease prevention and injury prevention, which then grew into the larger scope of maternal and child health and included a lot of the initiatives that you all are very familiar with in TIPQC, our newborn screening program, um, our infant mortality maternal mortality reduction programs. And then about two years ago, was promoted to deputy commissioner of population health. And so in that role, I uh, oversee those programs that we just talked about, but also a broad broader role with our safety net clinics, with rural health, with minority health, and then a lot of our data infrastructure for the department as well.
1: It's a, a big job.
2: <laughs> um, it's it's a big team. And the, really, it's it just like everybody in clinical practice, it's all about the team. And uh, we've got some fantastic people that really know what they're doing.
1: And I know there are a lot of areas, as you mentioned, that fall under your oversight. I think today we wanted to dig a little deeper in your work around identifying and preventing ACEs. Will you tell us a little bit about what that means and give us a definition for ACEs?
2: Sure. So I think most of us in the community and in medical practice are by now familiar with ACEs, so Adverse Childhood Experiences. And that's the term that we use to describe significant trauma or toxic stress, as we sometimes refer to it, that can impact early brain development. And the initial CDC Kaiser study in the late 90s identified a specific set of ACEs, so those were parental incarceration or mental illness, substance abuse, divorce, domestic violence or abuse or neglect. And the literature has evolved since then to include a number of other ongoing traumatic experiences like racism.
1: What role do ACEs play in health and well-being, and what are some of the lasting impacts that we see?
2: So ACEs in particular, I think it's important to understand the biology of ACEs, and then that really can help inform both the outcomes that we see because of ACEs, and then really our response and and ongoing prevention opportunities. And so those stressful or traumatic events that we uh, defined earlier can certainly generate a fight or flight response in our body, and our body intends for that to be protection. So we all know the feeling of a racing heart rate or dilated pupils or really high vigilance that we might experience if a car, for example, was headed toward us, or even if we were preparing for a positive, what could be a positive experience, like a, t- a test or a big event? But then when that level of stress encounters a developing brain, in particular, in a real intense manner, or perhaps even over and over again, in the setting of no protective factors, so say for the example of just the terror of a rage of domestic violence, there can actually be changes in the brain. And for example, the amygdala, which is part of the brain that activates our stress response, actually can enlarge in settings of toxic stress. We can actually see that on an MRI. And then at the same time, the prefrontal cortex, and that's that area of the brain that is uh, really in charge of keeping the amygdala under control. So that's our impulse control that experiences a loss of neurons or functionality. And so we certainly can imagine scenarios when an adult brain may need less hyperventilance and more emotional or impulse control, say in the setting of um, potential addiction when substances might feed it dopamine and the brain may not have develop to be able to optimally handle that scenario. And then there are other structures of the brain like um, the hippocampus, which is our memory and mood center that can be impaired both as we develop our sense of understanding and emotion. And so that relation to mental health risk is apparent in early brain development as well. And then we know that the ongoing stressors certainly upregulate our cortisol and put our stress response in, in overdrive. Um, And then that's been shown to have really inflammatory adverse effects on our circulatory system, resulting sometimes in high blood pressure, an increased risk for cardiovascular disease. I, I really appreciate the way that Dr. Nadine burke describes ACEs as an exposure with a dose response curve. And that's not to say that every exposure will result in adverse outcomes, but with increasing exposure in a manner that does not have protective factors, it certainly does lead to increased risk of heart disease, stroke, of behaviors like addiction um, or substance misuse. Even in Tennessee, we see that our own state data um, shows a significant impact for ACEs. We actually estimate the cost of ACEs to be somewhere around $5.2 billion in the state of Tennessee. And so that includes, of course, medical cost, increased morbidity, mortality, but also incre- includes really loss of educational opportunity, loss of um, employment opportunity. And those were estimates done in 2017. And our data actually shows us in Tennessee that a little more than half, so about 56% of Tennesseans have experienced at least one ACE during childhood and 16% have experienced four or more ACEs. So this is a pretty common exposure that certainly really impacts across the life course because the brain is developing that early infrastructure so early in life. And so I think a couple of other examples in our own Tennessee data We see that respondents to our data surveys show that individuals with more ACEs are more likely to report poor mental health days. And by more likely, I mean 14 or more poor mental health days in a given month. And similarly, they're more likely to report 14 or more physical poor health days in a month. And then similarly with health behaviors and risk-taking behavior, respondents who experienced four or more ACEs in Tennessee were three times more likely to be a current smoker compared to those that had no ACEs. So even as we say this, it's not, ACEs are not fate. And certainly we know that there are interventions that we can make and positive experiences that we can create for kids and for families. But nonetheless, this is a significant risk that we
1: want to make sure that we, we recognize and mitigate early in life. Absolutely. I think that's incredibly important. Can you talk a little bit about what is the ACE pyramid and what what is meant by that phrase?
2: So there are a lot of frameworks that I think are helpful in understanding ACEs, and the ACE pyramid is one of them. It really describes the mechanism that ACEs have and how they influence health and well-being throughout the lifespan. And so if you were to think about really from conception to death, so from birth to to death and the bottom part of the pyramid and and death being at the top part of the pyramid, those historical trauma really can result in a set of social conditions that kids and families are brought up in, which then can perpetuate ACEs that we were discussing earlier. Certainly no no demographic is immune from ACEs at all, but there are certainly certain environmental stressors that can be ACEs more likely if a family is not in a positive environment, for example. And then that results sometimes in dysregulated neurodevelopment that we discussed earlier. And that dysregulated neurodevelopment then impacts that child's growth and development over time, which then in and of itself, a subset of those children are at higher risk for later in life chronic disease and ultimately even early death. And I think another analogy, if if we can go there, a, a framework, if you will, is the ACEs tree, kind of the pair of ACEs that we've seen. And I love that model because it's comprehensive, I think, in the sense of how individuals interact and interface with their community. And so the roots of the trees are things that may be environmental factors. So community disruption, discrimination, poverty, housing, violence. And then the upper part of the tree, the branches are what you might see in the individual. So it might be maternal depression or divorce or incarceration. And both of those, the roots and that that overall atmosphere impact early brain development and how an individual may may grow and develop and be able to really fully engage in
1: the world. So for both of those frameworks, you mentioned the intergenerational effects of ACEs. And can you talk a little bit about that and historical trauma and the influence on future ACEs? Talk a little bit more along those lines.
2: Sure. So I think that the research here is pretty, pretty eye-opening and has been rapidly evolving. And What we've seen from that literature is really an epigenetic effect of ACEs. And by that, I mean really how genes are turned on and off or even modified from one generation to the next. And there have been a couple of interesting studies. So in, in one study, researchers compared the brains of adults with childhood trauma who had committed suicide, with the brains of adults without childhood trauma who had committed suicide. And in those brains of adults who had experienced childhood trauma, the genes that regulated cortisol or removing cortisol were 40% less functional, meaning that those individuals were less able to regulate stress. And so when we think about the upregulation or downregulation of certain genes, the stress itself has an impact on that. And then another example that was documented showed really infants who were exposed to prenatal and postnatal maternal depression had actual changes in the methylation of the glucocorticoid receptor genes. And so that certainly is... Uh, a, a parallel to the study that that we talked about really with the autopsy study. but stress itself impacts how we our genetic makeup and how we express genes as well as how we interface with our environment and passing that even uh, type of regulation from one generation to the next it really, I think, underscores the importance of interrupting cycles of ACEs and for parents um, to be aware of what ACEs are and how their own experiences impacts certainly their choices and behavior um, and the opportunity that they have to shape the young brain development of their children and children's
1: children for generations. And change the trajectory, potentially. So can you talk a little bit about how social determinants of health fit into this conversation?
2: So I think that tree analogy is, is really pertinent there, and that underscoring the roots of an individual, if you will, are often s- similar to those social determinants of health. So access to care, poverty, violence, housing, all of those certainly create environments where ACEs may be more or less likely or where families who and individuals who experience ACEs may thrive or not thrive, depending on really their ongoing stressors and the availability of supportive and nurturing environments that they may encounter.
1: Can you talk a little bit about resiliency and what do we do to create or improve resiliency in children who are impacted by ACEs? Yeah so I
2: think the really great news is that we can address aces both systematically and individually and we know that positive childhood experiences so are foundational and really are critical to to providing that brain cushion if you will during the building of early brain architecture and there are some traumatic experiences that may not be avoidable or traumatic experiences that may have already been experienced. And so being able to really equip parents with the knowledge of those positive childhood experiences really can reverse the course in assist all of us in building healthier brains for kids. So those positive childhood experiences are things like being able to talk with families about feelings and then kids that say that they felt that their family really stood by them or that they had another trusting adult that stood by them and understood their experience. Also, uh, created um, really a sense of protection for those kids. Some other things that we count, if you will, as positive childhood experiences include enjoying participating in community traditions, feeling a sense of belonging, whether that's in high school or early school, feeling supported by friends, and then having at least two non-parent adults who took a real interest in them. And then of course, feeling safe and protected by an adult in the house is also protective from adverse childhood experiences. I think one important thing to know is that every sector can do something to promote protective factors for kids and families. And so we can think about this in the economic sector and unemployment has a real impact on ACEs and on the ability for families to be able to care for young children. Similarly, those policies around family-friendly work policies, being able to take paid family leave and paid medical leave, be that with the birth of a child or with even an illness of a family member, again, creates that supportive infrastructure for families that that also is a protective factor. And then policies that protect against violence. So things like public education campaigns, trauma-informed care, be that in daycares or schools, and then bystander approaches and really involving the community. And if you see
1: something, say something. Dr. McDonald, what are some things we can do to screen our patients for ACEs and some interventions that can instruct our families to do that may be helpful? So
2: I think there are a number of interventions that providers can make both in their own clinical practice as well as in their engagement with community resources and from a policy perspective as well. We know that screening helps. So the American Academy of Pediatrics has a great toolkit for practice integration that really digs into primary and secondary and tertiary prevention. So those things that we can do with anticipatory guidance from a primary prevention perspective. And then secondary intervention being things like screening. In adults, there is, of course, the traditional ACE score that we talked about earlier. And then in kids, there are a number of screening tools that are either in validation phase or that have already been validated. Certainly, I've seen a lot around the Center for Youth Wellness ACE screening, the PEARL screening tool. And then want clinicians and providers to really be conscious of ways that we as a state agency and as a public health department can come alongside and assist in that way. When practices implement ACEs screening tools, please keep in mind a number of resources that we are happy to make available to you in the practice setting. Certainly, most practitioners are familiar with WIC or SNAP for those that have food insecurity. Similarly, every health department provides family planning services. And if that is a source of stress or if it may be a source of opportunity for a family to really be able to engage in family planning options in a culturally competent way, every health department provides that free of, of charge. And then We also have a relatively new program, the CHAMP Program, Community Health Access and Navigation in Tennessee. That's what that acronym stands for. And it is really a blend of medical care coordination as well as social services care coordination. It uh, houses our children's special services Program, which is our payer of last resort for kids with special health care needs that may have medical needs that are not paid for um, by insurance, um, whether they are currently insured or uninsured. And then it also is an opportunity, really, for social service referrals for all types of social services. And so, again, if there's food insecurity, if there is a, a, a need for care coordination navigation around insurance. So, if there's potentially a job loss or a, a life changing event that your patients need, help with navigating that there's 16 different pathways that chant care coordinators can really assist clinicians and so if there's a positive screen we encourage you to visit our website tn.gov health you can just type CHANT in the search, and there's a referral form and phone number, and we can walk you through that process. That's available in all 95 counties uh, in Tennessee. And so those kids that you're particularly worried about. They need a safe sleep environment. Mom may be struggling with postpartum depression and you need a resource for that. Those are all ways that we're happy to help engage in, in real time and walk those families through care coordination process and can take some of the burden off of your practices.
1: Yeah, I think CHANT is such a great resource to know about. So what progress have we had in addressing ACEs in Tennessee, and what are some steps forward coming out of the pandemic? So I think
2: one of the greatest things that came out of the last really decade of work in the state on ACEs is a common language and really an understanding of the science of brain architecture and being able to break that down into helpful analogies and thinking about the air traffic control center that's being developed in a young child's brain and being able to really understand how it is that child can then take in all of the inputs and regulate that in a manner that makes sense in their school environment or in their work environment later in life. And that brain architecture is really what's being developed in early childhood. And so I think that common language was not what's wrong with you, but what happened to you. It was a real win for our state and being able to have, whether it's legislative conversations or dinner table conversations with a common language is something that I think was a real achievement. And I think that coming out of the pandemic, we have a real opportunity to build on that understanding. We have an opportunity with significant federal funding coming in that can build additional infrastructure for families. So are we, again, building that economic opportunity, that educational opportunity? Are we addressing education gaps that we know have been growing over the past year? Are we doing it in a way that is understanding of the trauma that families might have faced? And are we able to provide that training to our staff, be it in an educational setting or in a medical setting. And then I think understanding that there are still gaps in our language, that there's still uh, a tendency to blame the victim. And to the degree that we can really turn those conversations again into what has happened, not just over the last year, but potentially over the lifespan of a child or an adult, that then gives us a mechanism of really progress moving forward. And understanding that even if traumatic experiences did happen early in childhood or throughout life, that's not an individual's fate. And that there's a real opportunity for practices, for communities, for policymakers, to come together from a supportive infrastructure perspective to really make sure that those adverse experiences don't determine a person's fate and that we don't assume that because a person had a traumatic experience that they therefore somehow damaged or that there's not really an opportunity for both compassion as well as, again, c- creating a supportive environment for that individual. And then I think also changing the language to a focus on protective factors is an opportunity that we have over the next several years. And we've really tried to incorporate that into our home visiting programs, really empowering uh, parents with the knowledge that, again, ACEs isn't fate. And if you've experienced that, we have resources to help you. And we also have really tools for you as a parent to think about these positive childhood experiences and how do we help you create that for your children. So we've built that into our programs. And I think clinicians are, are building that into their practices across the state as well.
1: And I think you touched on this with some of your earlier comments, but are there other specific policies that public or medical providers can advocate for to provide the kind of supportive environments that families really need to prevent and mitigate ACEs. Are there specific things you want to mention again?
2: Sure. So I think there, there are probably a dozen things that we could mention even off the top of our heads. And uh, certainly with as practices are thinking about their own trauma-informed care, how do they get the training that they need and their resources from the state and federally to provide that trauma-informed care clinically? I think also advocating for trauma-informed disciplinary practices in schools, advocating for paid medical leave when families need that. And also there's funding opportunities to advocate for, particularly in the area of evidence-based home visiting and our evidence-informed practices, so like the CHANT program. We are very fortunate that we were able to use some of the TANF funding from Department of Human Services this year to expand evidence-based home visiting to all 95 counties. And we have a centralized referral process, again, going on our website, tn.gov health. You can type in home visiting and we can get to a way to get families plugged into evidence-based home visiting, but expanding funding for those programs, certainly on a system level, impacts ACES and provides a really supportive infrastructure for families as well.
1: That is super exciting that home visiting is now in all the counties. That's a yes. huge, huge benefit for our families. What are some other resources that our listeners can access to learn more about prevention of ACEs or to learn more about their own exposure?
2: So, there are a number of different resources that both nationally and internationally, the Alberta Institute has a, a- Great resource. The CDC has a number of uh, different websites, but their main ACEs website actually has a very large company of research regarding particularly ACEs outcomes in a couple of dozen different sectors and health impact areas. The American Academy of Pediatrics, as I mentioned, has the Resilience Project and a couple of other healthy brain development resources. But the Resilience Project has a pretty detailed toolkit for a practice implementation, but also some great educational videos and handouts for parents. We put some of those resources on Kids Central Tennessee. The uh, ACE Aware foundation um, or ACE-Aware initiative has pulled together a number of really kind of user-friendly resources as well. And then we've got some state-based resources. Uh, the Tennessee uh, Commission on Children and Youth has an ACEs really landing page, the Building Storm Brains landing page that uh, provides some training resources as well as uh, helpful videos, data, and an update on what the state is doing around ACEs, as does our website and the Kids Central
1: TN website. Those are very helpful resources, so Dr. McDonald, we really appreciate your time today. I think I've learned a lot. I hope our listeners have too. We appreciate it and look forward to hearing from you
0: next time. Thanks so much, Anna. Thank you for listening to this episode of Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee presented by TIPQC. TIPQC is funded under a grant contract with the state of Tennessee. Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee is brought to you through a cooperative agreement with the Alliance for Innovation on Maternal Health. Do you have ideas for a future guest or topic, or even have a question you would like answered on upcoming episodes? Visit www.tipqc.org, that's T I P Q C.org, and click on Podcast to submit suggestions and questions to our podcast team.